This is the AI Artifacts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Warmoth, with Sarah Luger, PhD, and we are back again to go beyond the hype, under the hood, and into the fray to see what's happening in AI this week. Welcome to not only episode 14 of the AI Artifacts Podcast, you are also listening to the season one finale of the AI Artifacts Podcast. Sorry to drop a bomb on everybody, but it had to be said. Hello, Sarah. We need a break. (laughs) We need a vacation. We're taking a small break. Don't look at this as an end so much as a new beginning. When Sarah and I first set out to do this, we knew we wanted to do a full season. Honestly, we talked about doing a dozen episodes, and now here we are at 14, which I'm really excited about. But what this means is we are going to take a few weeks off. It might be a month. It might be two months. We'll see what happens, but we have a new idea for season two that we would like to pursue, and it's going to take a little bit of work in the background as we get it together. But in the meantime, we are going to continue to send some newsletters out from AIartifacts.net. That's where our Substack account is located, where you can subscribe, and I would encourage you all to do so. And if you do that, you will be able to get updates on when season two premieres. Thank you, Brian. Keeping us in the loop. Yeah, Yeah, well, you got to do something. And uh, Sarah and I will both be contributing to that and filling your minds with all of the tidbits that we are gleaning on a weekly basis from our research into AI and conversations that we're having. Sarah. We were kidding. I was just going to say we're kidding. We're not actually taking a vacation. We're just (laughs) the output format. I would love a two-month vacation. Be fun. Not right now. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. 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 But I just, we're just going to deliver this information in a slightly different format Mm -hmm. for a wee bit. And then we'll figure out season two. I'm going to miss the weekly conversations in the meantime, though. I mean, I... I, I don't want to tease it because the idea may change by the time we get to bringing it about for, for season two, but Sarah, it's been, this has been a really cool experience and I'm, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this podcast with me. And it, it's, it's only going to get better if we, if we get to the point that we were talking about the other day. Well, I just like to thank everyone who's listened and dealt with my inability to form complete sentences just like that you're, you're over anyway it's been great, yourself. It's been great. And we've had a it's, bunch of good guests too i you know i can't believe how many people we've met doing this since we exactly. started it's well, it's been so cool to bring want people to together. talk yeah they want to yeah. talk and they want to and we have a lot of our network is robust and if other people who listen are interested in in talking to us in this format please get in touch because a lot of valuable connection can be made just from listening, saying, hey, I think this person has ideas that align with mine. I'd love to to go one step further and, and engage directly. So please do reach out to any of our, our speakers. 100%. We've had some great startups. Yeah. And any of this is this is an opportunity. That's and a good call to action. Not the end. Yeah, no, that's actually, that's actually great. And you know what, we'll be in a better place in season two, because of it, if anybody does hear this and thinks, Oh, I am an AI startup, or I am a researcher doing some something cool with AI, or I am an average person with an, with a passion in some place that is intersecting with AI right now. And I'm learning a lot about it. I'd like to share that. We would love to hear from you. Because that's, I think, some things may change with this podcast, but 
one thing that's going to say the same is we want it to be a conversation that serves people at the intersection of AI and other spaces, whether that's exactly. research, whether that's doing nonprofit work, whether that's doing, whether you're a bus driver, are you a bus driver and you are yeah. using AI now? I'm yeah. kind of, I'd be, I'd love to know more about Pray that. Pray tell. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, might, so yeah. this, this is about humans, right? This is about us. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity that we haven't even scratched the surface of, of yeah. real AI implementations. And it's going to be a great year. I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot to discuss Woo-hoo. this year. Uh, speaking of lots of things to discuss, have you been watching tech earnings the past week? I have. And there was a there was something that <laughs> this headline struck me. AI companies lose $190 billion after dismal financial reports. What uh, is underneath that? What is that about? The, well, the subtitle is, have we already hit? peak AI, but Google financial earnings were disappointing by Microsoft, Google owners alphabet. And this is just saying that Microsoft may have done okay, but it's uh, stock dropped by almost a percentage in extended trading. So mm-hmm. Google's parent company fared more poorly, dropping over five and a half percent and AMD the chip producer mm-hmm. also had some some earnings that were not up to muster. So this isn't mm-hmm. just the gamma. This is the, the ecosystem around it. You know, there's a lot of hype. The, there's, the stocks have been up. You know, this mm-hmm. is maybe a little bit of a shakeup, figuring out exactly what that trajectory should be. You know, Apple is still a $3 trillion company. But I think, you know, we've talked about this in past episodes that there's been layoffs by by some of these companies that never had layoffs. There's been reorganization of focus. We'll be talking about that more with Meta, which changed its name to Meta and is now talking again about AI across its offerings instead of augmented reality per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we want to avoid this notion that AI is like the dot-com era where it's more promise than reality. But I, I do think that maybe just one quarter is a small window to look at. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing where some of these, some of these earnings direct the companies uh, to make moves. Yeah. I mean, it's quite something. It, it, you look at that chart of Meta's stock yeah. price, and you look at where it took a dive and you can just watch in real time the reaction to, oh, this metaverse thing isn't working out. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, we're going to yeah. lay people off and we're going to double down on AI and scrap a lot of the metaverse stuff. And you can just, it, they're, they're they're back to where, where they were prior to the turmoil. Exactly. And, you know, that also had to do with loss of information and cookies that Apple was quite vigilant in upping privacy mm. concerns. So sure. I think everyone talks about focus and it sounds like the earnings weren't great, but mm. the focus is all generative AI all the time right now. So mm. let's give it another quarter, see yeah. how this shakes out. Well, let's go through some of the big stories from the week. The one of the, at the, and they're all, these are all about our, our gamma 
companies, as we're referring to them, as we said a couple episodes ago. I, I felt like this was a mm-hmm. logical continuation of the conversation uh, because completely, yeah, we we began talking about in that episode, which was what was this? this is going back episode? We're in episode fourteen, so this is episode twelve now, I guess, where we we did our special looking at the the gamma companies. You know, we discussed how the strategies are a little bit different, and we saw a little bit about what's different, how they're competing, how they're catching up to one another in various ways in the in the earnings reports. The first one this week, so Amazon announced its new AI shopping assistant. It's called Rufus, which I love because I, I can only think of George Carlin and Bill and Ted's excellent adventures, their mentor, Rufus. He, he will always be the one true Rufus for me. Exactly. And this is the George Carlin themed podcast. I guess we do AI. We're going to find a way to get George Carlin into every episode we can. Yes. yes, In in a respectful way. In a a way that his daughter and family would 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 approve. Hopefully. I would hope that the estate would would condone our celebration of his wonderful role as Rufus in, in the Bill and Ted franchise. Yeah. And it's also a male name, you know. A lot of these. That's a good point. Have been gendered. We don't see them yeah. much. What was the one? Didn't yeah. I think Samsung had a male name? What was oh, Samsung's yes. called? Samsung's called. Did it start? Oh, that's a good quiz question. It was yeah. called. Samsung. Did it start with a B? Bixby. Bixby. That's what. Bixby. It was oh my goodness, Bixby. I was, yeah. I wanted. I was. Like I, I was about to say Bartleby, and I'm like, that is definitely yeah. not right. I knew I, I knew the B in that Y. Yeah. Anyway, so Amazon's got this new assistant, Rufus. I'm reading from the TechCrunch article here. It says Rufus, meanwhile, is a generative AI experience that's been trained on the the product catalog, customer reviews, community Q and As, and information from around the web, so it can answer customers' questions related to their shopping needs, whether they're at the start of their shopping journey, trying to narrow down choices, or when they have more specific questions. Now, also, I, I thought it was important to note that this should be distinguished from Q, which was the like enterprise, the business targeted assistant Focus. that Amazon, yeah. Amazon tried out. And it, it's, well, we can get to this in another example later, but it's, I think it's fascinating that you see different assistants with different names emerging, mm-hmm. showing that there, these, these are different products that these companies are making. Not you, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Q, Rufus, and Bixby all skew a little English. I would note. Yeah, if Q is supposed to be a reference to James Bond, uh, but Q also had a quite well documented failure of uh, revealing personal information. Mm -hmm. And but Mm -hmm. this looks really interesting because you know from a the interface for. Amazon has not changed very much. It's very dense. There's a lot of information. Some of the charts and and graphics have been quite useful. They A-B test the heck out of things before they implement change. But at the end of the day, when you're doing cost analysis, comparison, you're trying to get external reviews, perhaps, this is exactly the sort of engagement that a chatbot would be really Uh, well-suited for. So I think this is a really good fit and I expect it to push some, some sales more effectively. And, and, you know, they're at the end of the day, what's, what's their goal? Their goal is to have fewer returns. Mm -hmm. You know, they want, they want this to be a product that does meet your expectation and is what you want. And asking questions is one of the ways that humans 
you know, mm. are on that journey to discovery, be it a item to buy or, you know, solution to some other challenge. Is this my, a fit for me? I got to say my first reaction reading this is I hope they picked the real legit human reviews to train this off of. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. No, that's, that's a great point. Right. Amazon yeah. has been so awash in, you know, people finding and ways to obviously see fake reviews. incentivized reviews, fake reviews, et cetera. I, I would assume that they're on top of that and they're in, they're in, they're, they're interested in representing real human organic reviews rather than the alternative in this in this um, yes. AI assistant. So we'll see. I, I don't know that, but maybe, maybe I hope, so this I hope is, that's the case. Yeah. And you know, that is a big challenge. I do want to be supportive of Amazon and that in this one case that, <laughs> that, that is a big challenge to get rid of fake reviews on mm-hmm. a site as large as, as what it is. You know, the consumers are, are pretty sophisticated in terms of, of what we now expect from a chatbot. So Mm-hmm. I look forward to hearing reviews. Let's get into an established chat bot here, which is Google's Bard. Google is yes. leveling up Bard's capabilities, although this is a capability that ChatGPT has already integrated now months ago. Going from the verge here, they're they're launching the ability to create images, text to image capability, which Bard was not not doing previously and this is coming from its Imagine Imagine 2, I should say, model here. Now, and, and also the images are going to have this new watermarking technology that Google's using baked in, which is a great step to see. I I have so many questions about this watermarking stuff in practice. Like it's good it's there and it's good it's being used. You, you just, you, you feel like the bad actors are probably not going to use it, which is the depressing end of that. But hopefully it creates good norms that mm-hmm. do facilitate good behavior yeah and and maybe it gets the low-hanging fruit i mean think of Mm -hmm. 20 years ago the sort of spam emails that you would get the ones that you get now are very different we adapt and there's still going to be bad actors but hopefully this will create some friction Mm -hmm. to and and raise awareness like Mm -hmm. that's you know we've talked about how as more of these fake images become mainstream one one negative effect is that we we say oh we're impressed by the quality of the ai but mm-hmm. then we're also more likely to think all images may be faked because mm-hmm. of that realism that if yeah. if it if you see something that's really fantastic you are told hey i i just generated this then it actually reduces your trust in all images because you realize wow this the technology can make something that is an incredible facsimile of, of the reality. So we talked about this concept of the liar's dividend a couple of weeks back, and we'll include a link to that, which may have negative repercussions in the political arena coming up or, you know, moving forward with celebrities and their identities online. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the Google is, is on the right foot. They're still catching up, you know, they're chasing, but they, this is free. Not all the functionality is there, but it is Mm -hmm. free. So I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people are going to be trying it out to really say, Hey, uh, how does this flesh out the ecosystem for these offerings? Yeah. It's, it's been an interesting journey watching Google play the fast follow game the last year. Whereas I'm used to seeing them be a little bit more ahead, but you know, as as we've talked about ad nauseum on here, you know, chat GPT beat them 
to the market, just like it did a lot of other parties. And now we're seeing what Google can do and if it can catch up. So keep an eye. Yeah, out. it has a bunch. Yeah, keep an eye out. But it has a bunch of data, right? Mm-hmm. So it has a, a Google has a tremendous amount of unique data. Think of it as the information from, say, your your Google office suite mm-hmm. that, you know, so yeah. Google Drive, your Google Docs, your email, your photos, the searches that you do. I mean, your calendaring information and different forays into products. Tons, you know, tons of information where they have the context of intent. They have the context of yeah. was the result good or was it not good? What's your follow-up? They have all sorts of these processes and dialogues and everything, which can only yeah. make their data set better. Which ties into our next article that we wanted to highlight this week. Our next story. Getting back to Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's well, dominating this week. Yeah. So yeah. Meta in their report, we've got a link to the fortune coverage of this. It was on Yahoo Finance. Meta's capital expenditures could increase by as much as $9 billion this year, totaling between $30 billion and $37 billion compared to $28.1 billion in 2023. And that's specifically in reference to what Meta is going to spend to try to catch up with everyone else. Or, I mean, they're actually pretty advanced themselves, but what, what they're going to try to do to beat Google and Microsoft. I'll read the, the, yeah, and OpenAI, of course, of course, which, sorry, I say Microsoft and I automatically thought about OpenAI, but yeah, it should be stated explicitly there. So Mark Zuckerberg said, there are hundreds of billions of publicly shared images and tens of billions of public videos, which we estimate is greater than the common crawl data set. And that's, he's, he's specifically referencing in Meta's earnings call from Thursday, what he thinks they have that Google and Microsoft don't. And, it, and Fortune, it says it was a not so subtle jab at competitors, Google and My, Google, Microsoft and OpenAI, which are training their AI models on the public web data crawled by their search engines every day. Yeah. But I, it's also illustrative data. and private. Yeah. Data. Yeah. 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 Yes. But he has a ton. Yeah. As you were about to say, he has a ton. Yeah. And it's the amount of money getting heaved at this in an era. And I mean, they'll be happy that their stock prices have gone back up because that gives them a little bit more to work with when they need to make capital expenditures like this. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a large amount of money. This is obviously Meta's concerned about Google, Microsoft and OpenAI. As we said, everyone has their own private data, but Facebook creates an ecosystem that also gives context to that mm-hmm. information and a, and a lifespan. So you really can see how, how people communicate what they care about. That being said, if in, in the circumstance of these different companies, Meta has had a public, their, their model llama has been open source. So they have leaned into open source as a way to improve their large language model and Google has a team of experts working on this internally. So they've also played this kind of internal ambitious AI game versus let's help have the community help us while we 
gather our data and perhaps regain our focus to AI after being distracted by the metaverse for, for a wee bit. Which gets back full circle to what we began talking about, <laughs> yeah. their, uh, yeah. their great journey. All right, Sarah, this is... Last one. <laughs> this is the last chance for season one. We'll see if True Truths and Lay AI comes back in the next season, given our, our contemplation of formatting changes. But it's time for Two Truths and Lay AI one more time this season. For those who are not familiar, if you're discovering this podcast on the final episode of the first season, Two Truths and Lay AI is our weekly game where I bring two real articles and one fake article in a mystery order. And Sarah guesses which two are real and which one has been generated using AI. And uh, this week's theme is AI-generated content, if that makes any sense. You'll meta, understand. Meta, how meta. It's a little bit meta. Oh my yeah. yeah. Let's get started with number one here. Number okay. one, Instacart quietly deletes its unsettling AI-generated food pics. Instacart scrubbed <laughs> some AI-generated food images after an article on the delivery company's use of AI. The images began raising eyebrows on the Instacart subreddit in early January when users started to compile their favorite absurdities. The AI, AI images featured physically impossible compositions, unnatural shadows, and strangely blended textures. For instance, pictures accompanying a recipe for chicken in Nassau showed two chickens conjoined at the shoulder, while the hot dog stir-fry photo showed a slice of a hot dog with the interior texture of a tomato. All of the recipes <laughs> highlighted in the earlier article appear to have been taken down from the Instacart website. Other recipes discovered by Reddit users, meanwhile, had the AI-generated images replaced with what appears, appears to be stock photography. Take, for instance, an AI-generated photo for simple steamed broccoli crowns, which attempted to put notched crowns in the stems of broccoli and is now replaced nice. by a generic image of cooked broccoli. Number one. Nice. Number two. How beloved indie blog The Hairpin turned into an AI clickbait farm. In 2018, the indie women's website Hairpin, The Hairpin stopped publishing along with its sister site The Owl. This year, The Hairpin has been Frankensteined back into existence and stuffed with slapdash AI-generated articles designed to attract search engine traffic. Sample headlines. What does it mean when you remember your dreams? And White Towns, Your Woman, Explained. Some original articles remain, but have been reformatted in a strange way, and the author's bylines have been replaced by generic male names of people who do not appear to exist. One piece by writer Kelly Conaboy about celebrity teeth now appears under the name James Nolan, of whom I can't find a single trace online. That was number two. Wow. Number three. Wow. Oakwood Springs residents wrestle with AI-dominated next-door content. In rural Utah, Oakwood Springs faces a digital upheaval caused by a local social media community flooded with bizarre AI-generated content. Once a hub for community updates, the Nextdoor platform now churns out surreal posts, leaving residents baffled by its transformation. It's like stepping into a parallel universe every time I log in to Nextdoor, said Sarah Thompson, a longtime resident. 
It used to be practical, but now it's just nonsensical. John Davis, a community organizer, expressed frustration saying, we tried to organize a cleanup, but instead got suggestions to summon aliens. It's gone from helpful to downright confusing. The app, once a source of local news and recommendations, now bombards users with outlandish theories and absurd poetry, leaving residents perplexed and questioning the app's role in their lives. Wow. I think that each of these has its own merits. Number one, Instacart scrubbed images. Did you ever see that website, Regretsy? That I believe was eventually taken down by Etsy. But Regretsy was all of the really poorly conceived and executed items that were sold on Etsy. Kind of created a a little bit of a uh, hall of honor, you know, the best of. And it was quite alarming. Many of these items were quite alarming. And I'm not just talking about taste. They were quite alarming. So. Yeah. But yeah, so with the rise of ghost kitchens, uh, I could imagine this to be a real situation where you make food, but there's no actual counter or, mm-hmm. you know, this is just your kitchen gets orders from an app and it makes the food and then they escape via someone's labor. So it's, I think that could be very possible. The hairpin owl, I mean, you had me a celebrity teeth and also removing, you know, removing female names for male names. That seems very, very viable, very possible. But three, you know, I do think maybe people should be reflecting on what they were hoping to get out of next door. And I'm going to say three is the fake because of the, because it's adjective-y. It's got the uh, adjectives, downright confusing, bombards, absurd, bizarre content. All of yeah. these could be true, but I, I think that's that's the one. Yeah. So story number one was from Business Insider about Instacart. Mm-hmm. Story number two was from another great Wired feature that I was just reading earlier today. And yes, story number three. The next door article is fake. Yeah. It was phony. It was AI generated. It was straight from chat GPT. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Downright yeah. confusing. Yeah. I, Brian, I, this I'm is a just, great exercise. Yeah. I, you know, I, having heard perspectives from, let's just say a variety of people over the last year and a half about how well AI is doing at imitating people in writing articles. Yeah. I feel like this whole exercise, this season in which you have, you, you've won more than two thirds of the time at these. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's been a great exercise in trying to compare this output with real human output. And you know, so far, I even with follow up prompts, I fail to see ChatGPT quite stepping up to the level of true professional human writers. And I feel pretty good about that. Good. Yeah. I mean, one advantage that we have here is I'm a bit of an absurdist. So that, you know, you can really, you can throw some weird stuff at me, but I tried to embrace that. Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah. I, I, I know you know me well enough that you're like, mm, these are, that was like the Fibonacci <laughs> of last week. Right. I know. Uh, I, I know love the Fibonacci. Here. I love Fibonacci. <laughs> I know. I, I give chat GPT some props on that one. Yeah. All right. Oh, that well, was, that- that was generated by with you didn't have to say add in Fibonacci because my one second no. thought was like oh I bet I bet he said 
add in celebrity teeth. <laughs> I didn't actually, but Fibonacci, I actually did say, can you please reference some specific, I forget what the phrase Math. was. Can you actually, yeah. rep- re- can you reference real, perf- real actual mathematical theorems or models in this? Yeah. 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 Excellent. Right. All right. Well, well, you're that, getting very skilled at, yeah. at generating these. I think that's we'll also a, a lesson. I'll try to refine my craft Thanks. in the off season, so to speak, <laughs> before we come back for, for season two. Now, in the meantime, we do have one more interview for you, which Sarah and I have recorded. I'm going to cut over to that right now. Welcome back for this interview of episode 14 in the AI Artifacts podcast. Sarah, we've got a really exciting guest lined up here today, and I am personally very interested to hear you introduce him today. Thank you so much. It is with great pleasure that I introduce Chris Emesway, the founder of Lanfrica and a researcher with Masakane working on AI NLP challenges for lower resource languages, as well as being at the Mila Quebec AI Institute, where he's a graduate student. Chris and his team won the Bambara French Machine Translation Competition held last year that I, I ran, where he created a new global benchmark for top Bambara to French and French to Bambara translation in the world. It is an incredible honor to have him join us. Chris, please, please be Thank welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a lot of accolades. The way you <laughs> you introduced me, I'm really, really humbled. Thank you. Maybe we should start off by yeah. telling people what Bambara is. I, I hear you oh, bringing yes. that up. And I think for our general audience, it might they might be well served to hear some more about that. Exactly. Yeah, and I do want to note that Chris does not speak Bambara, nor does he speak French. So <laughs> he is a winner of a competition. Chris, take it away. Yeah, so Bambara language is an African language. It's spoken, I believe, in Mali and other neighboring countries. It's widely spoken in Mali. And I think the the people who live in Mali that speak Bambara, they also speak French as, I guess, the official colonial language. So I think that's why it's Bambara French made a lot of sense for for that region. So yeah, that's, that's it about the language. How did you end up working on that then? If it's not a language you speak, what? How did you select that? How did how did you begin working with it? Yeah, yeah. The thing with me is, I think I, I I'm kind of a crazy adventurer when it comes to languages. I always end up entering into languages that I don't speak or I don't know, and it, it goes way back. So I, you know, here I am, a Nigerian living in Nigeria, and guess what? I move over to Russia to learn a whole new language. And when I tell people that, they're crazy. Like, what are you doing? How did you, did you learn it before? No. And then fast forward a couple of years later, I am in Germany learning German. And then fast forward later. Um, so I think I have this interesting adventure with languages where I, I find myself in a language that I, have, I know nothing about and I'm really trying to navigate it. And it's it's quite an interesting journey trying to navigate a language you don't understand. And I've learned quite a lot about, about like not understanding something, but kind of being comfortable and going through the process of trying to understand it. So to answer your question, how we got to choose, we didn't choose Bambara French. The organizers chose it, but... I remember when I saw the email the first time, I think I 
I, I glanced over it. I was like, yeah, yeah, competition. I, I kind of want to do more research. And then I saw the email a second time and I, I don't remember. I just felt like, well, let's try. It's a, I guess this thing with me of let's try. It's a new language. I know nothing about it. I want to try some of these modeling stuff, flex some modeling. Let's, let's give it a try. I never really thought about the fact that I didn't understand the language. I guess I just, because I knew that I could always get a team. First of all, I knew that it wasn't a deal breaker for me. Like, I guess that's the, the thing of me of, I don't know the language, but that's okay. So I knew it was not a deal breaker for me. And I, I believed that I, we could find a way around it. So for example, getting a team of people who understand the language and working with them. Yeah. Awesome. So for the listeners out there, as Chris said, Bambara is spoken in Mali, some in Cote d'Ivoire, other West African nations, but it's spoken by tens of millions of people. And that may sound like a lot of people. It's the second language historically in Mali, which was a French colonial uh, government where French was the official language. But because of a lot of recent pushes by national identity groups, as well as the nation itself has now a language institute supporting Bambara acquisition. So in the past, you could only get a job in the government or in maybe a formal professional office if you spoke French, but that's changed. That is completely changed. Bambara is the language I tell people, it's the biggest language that you've never heard of and you're going to be hearing a lot more of it about it because Mali has a very young population with very high birth rate and France's influence there has been waning. So this is going to be the new language of a dynamic people who have a lot of self-determinism and that's mm -hmm. aligned with the whole region, right? That's yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. I, I, In my experience, like I've been working for, I think, more than half a decade on African languages, I have seen the the new generation, there's this sort of awareness. It's slow, but it's coming. This awareness of, okay, I need to... I need to try and speak my language. I need to try and teach my kids my language. I need to try and, you know, get into this. There's this ideology of how, like, when you get economically good, like you're satisfied economically and sustained, then you start worrying about other needs. And so I think with the economy of Africa sort of getting better and better, then the generation you know, after us and, you know, before me, it was really just, okay, learn English, get a good job, get, you know, be sustainable. But And now when the economy is getting better with a lot of these advancements, it's now, okay, let's try and speak our language. Let's try and add more efforts to our language. I, I look at some YouTube videos of some content creators, Nigerian content creators, and I see that they're now speaking their language. So it's like a mix of English and they, they take the effort to, they take the effort to translate to English and sub, sub so I'm really seeing this kind of awakening, you know, towards trying to speak more African languages. And that's a good thing. Nigeria alone has a pretty diverse group of cultures represented in it, right? Oh, well, how many, how many languages? Yeah. Do you know off the top of your head how many are, are spoken there? Oh, Nigeria, Nigeria. The way I, when people ask me Nigeria languages, I always say Nigeria is a complex mosaic of languages. <laughs> yeah. That's a term from, I think, Chinua Chebe. 
And it's a complex, like a mosaic, really. There's about 400 plus languages in Nigeria. That's amazing. 400 plus. I think some also report 500. So it's 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 a crazy mix of cultures and languages. And how many were you directly we have the... exposed to growing up? Oh, I, I I would say a lot because yeah. you know there were some I was exposed to before I even knew what they were. And mm-hmm. um, I was exposed, the ones I can count, I was exposed to Igbo. So I'm, I, I, I come from, my parents, my parents come from Igbo speaking tribes. Mm-hmm. I was exposed to Yoruba when I went to, again, me and my crazy adventure, traveling to another part of the country, like a strange place to, to do my studies. I have been exposed to Hausa a bit. Really, the, 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 beauty, the beauty of Nigeria is that it's a complex mosaic and you get you get to see you know like if you're living in a in a, in the south in the southeast which is supposed to be Igbo but you see some Yoruba people there you know they they have kids and stuff you see some house of people they're selling stuff so it's like these cultures are mixing yeah yeah that's an incredible density i mean for one country you think about that i mean the european experience you could grow up you know encountering five or six or seven in in an area but in, in that in that one country that's that's incredible I, I'd love to know more about your tech journey and how your interest in language is connected with your, your your abilities and learnings in technology that got you to this point where you were engaged enough to compete in this contest yeah that's that's a that's a very quite interesting journey so I started as a as a young boy i I remember when I, when my uncle asked me what I wanted to be, and I looked up to the stars and I said I wanted to be an inventor. I was really fascinated with inventions. My mom even bought like a, a poster of inventors and what they invented. I had this you know, desire to create things. And I grew up to learn to love mathematics because I liked mathematics. You have a problem and you're trying to solve it. And you're trying to think of new ways or take what you know and twist it somehow. So... During my undergraduate, I naturally went to study mathematics. And I remember, and I, I did that in Russia. So I went to, I got a scholarship and went to Russia for my mathematics undergraduate studies. And I remember in my, I think, sophomore, almost final year, I was, I was feeling kind of, I didn't like the trend. I didn't want to be a math teacher or teaching maths in secondary schools. And, you know, I also didn't like the idea of just proving theorems or, you know, dreams of old people. And I really didn't see the connection to reality. So I think I wanted something that had the theory and the the beauty of maths that I loved, but also had some real world applications. Tangible output. You were looking for something that you could exactly create something. Exactly. Exactly. But but also connects with the mathematics thing Mm -hmm. and, you have to think and you have to brainstorm and, and find solutions to problems. And that's when I found out about data science, machine learning. I remember my first book was a Francois Cholet's book, Keras Deep Learning. And I remember just copying, pasting the code, like not copy paste, but like typing the code on my Python, not understanding what was happening, but just trying that. So I think that was how I entered into data science, machine learning. Then I, I ventured more into that. In, in 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 retrospect, what really helped me or propelled me in my career was really experience. Because around that time that I was learning this machine learning, 
I felt like, okay, I'm doing a lot of learning on my laptop. I want to do something tangible. So I remember me and my friend, we would try and go for hackathons and competitions. So that's how the I got my competition flair. Like we would go for hackathons, spend like two days and trying to figure out this problem, trying to find out what we can do uniquely to get an edge over others and get like the best scores. So that's how I started honing my competition skills. And then the next stage of my journey was really meeting Masakane because I met a community of people who were interested in the same thing that I was interested in. And they were like, gave me the opportunity to engage in projects, also do some of the projects that I wanted to do and find collaborators. And I just kept getting more and more experience. You know, I, I kept saying yes to a lot of things, a lot of opportunities. I had this this mantra in me, like always say yes, say yes, and then figure out what is it that you, you need to learn and you need to figure out. So I, I said yes to a lot of opportunities and I kept getting more and more experience. And I think that's really what brought me to where I am right now. Maybe say a little bit more. What is Masakani exactly? Yeah. So Masakane is so before I before I said Masakane, let me say the problem. Yeah. The problem is the problem comes down to language technologies. So that think of things like your voice assistants, your translation, your series, your Googles, and even down to the applications. And the the mere fact that there are seven thousand languages in the world. And there is 2,000 plus languages in on the African continent. Mm-hmm. And these technologies that are used worldwide do not even cover any African language. So these mm-hmm. voice assistants up to now do not cover a single African language. And so there's a, there's a huge gap in terms of language coverage. Yes, these technologies are good and they're really changing our world. But there's a huge gap in them. And when you let this go, you 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 have a world, a technologically advanced world, but a culturally deficient world. They don't they only know English and the, the, the English narrative. So mm-hmm. Masakane is a response to this. And it's basically a group of people coming together to say, okay, no, I want to do something. So it could be people who speak an African language who have seen the same narrative that I have seen and said, okay, no, I want to. I want to invest in my language. I want to do something. It could also be people who don't have anything to do with African languages, but they say, okay, I love this this direction. I am passionate about the same thing and let me invest. So these people come together and form the community that we call Masakane. Masakane is a Zulu word mm-hmm. that literally means we work together. So like we, we do things together. And it's this idea of coming together to achieve this goal. And the simple goal is putting African languages on the technology map. And one way to understand this is in the next five to 10 years, you would have some of these technologies efficiently conversating and using the African language. You would have a Siri that you could speak in an African language. You would have a translate that can translate well in the African language and can be used in the financial or health or agricultural sector. And so this is the the vision that Masakane as a community is trying to achieve. I would like to note that Masakane is a community that when Dr. Timnit Gebru was asked recently, tell me something good 
that's happening in artificial intelligence because she's been famous and prescient in her identification of algorithmic bias, responsible AI, to the extent with some of her co-researchers when she was at Google talking about the downsides of large language models. She called out Masakane as a sign of what AI could be and how it could be being how collaboration between peoples could be bringing innovation, life, life changing, you know, quality of life changing technologies. And that, as Chris said, the distribution of these technologies is completely unequal. And as we've seen with language, the ability to use technologies and them being intuitive, you know, so that's familiarity that may determine your ability to get a job. And that's extremely, that's a very powerful challenge for an entire continent that's been left out of that race, right? So how do we, how do we change the, change this? Like shake, how do we grab the tablecloth and, and pull it out and keep some pieces, but actually just change. So Masakane is a community that is open to everyone and we can share information about how you can get involved. But please, Chris, tell me a little bit about Lanfrica, your startup. Yes, Lanfrica. So I I joined Masakane, I think, so that was during my undergraduate days. I had got some theoretical knowledge and I was very hungry for some practical, to try out some of these practical ideas. I remember the first thing I did related to AI, the first research thing I did was a translation system for fun to French. Again, two languages I don't speak. It was my friend who spoke those languages and we we wanted to do a machine translation for African language and we said, let's choose one. And I said, let's go with fun. And I remember trying to get data and seeing the fun sentences and not knowing what they were, but feeling comfortable with the getting the data and everything. I did learn one phrase, though, how to say thank you in that language. It's stuck in my head. Okay. So I, I joined Masakane. We, 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 I embarked on a number of collaborative projects that really widened my scope, gave me more skills. And I kept seeing a reoccurring thing. It felt to me like many language technologies around the African context, so African languages or the African geographical area, really had a number of bottlenecks. And I felt like as long as if we we need to attack these bottlenecks head on, you know, we can't keep trying to pad it and trying to find, you know, find, find ways around it. We need to just tackle it. And one bottleneck I always kept coming across was data. It's just the bottleneck of data. And in my experience with Masakani and working on many projects, I realized that this bottleneck was really multifaceted. It's not just simple as, well, you don't have data, you don't have data. There's different angles to it. And so I wanted to, I want to make an impact when it comes to African languages and language technologies, I want to make an impact, a kind of a lasting impact. And I felt that, okay, I really need to tackle this data. And this is what Landfrica is really trying to do. 
it's like if we want to make an impact for African languages and African language technologies and the mission of putting African languages there, we need to tackle this data thing. We need to really look at it. And this is Landfreaker. And again, so tackling the tackling this data problem is it's difficult. It's it's more it's more difficult than it sounds. And what we're trying to do at Landfreaker is so we have our our mission is to tackle the data related challenges when it comes to AI in the global south. And to tackle it, we need to understand it. So what we've been doing a lot currently at Landfreaker is trying to understand the problem. Understanding the problem by interacting with the stakeholders involved in the program, not the top ones, but the, the you know the bottom down the the chain stakeholders. When you to talk really about understand that, you're the problem explicitly, the people who speak those languages. Yes, right? yes, yeah. the people who speak the languages, the communities who speak the languages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that. And so, at Landfreaker, we we we're a company a company organization, we're trying to really tackle the data challenges mm. coming to Africa. We're looking at, we are working on a fundamental ethos that we call data farming. So data farming as opposed to data mining. With data mining, you That's just come, you collect data. Yeah. 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 With data mining, you come, you collect data. It's all about how can we collect the data and you extract that's it. it. Yeah, exactly. And and then you leave the place. That's the thing with mining, right? You extract, you leave. Then, you know, when the place gets barren, then you go to another place. But with oh, data yeah. farming, we want to bring a new a new perspective to it. So how do you come and how do you invest through some practices that end up giving you the data as a byproduct? And this is a concept that we really have at the fundamental heart of what we're doing at Landfreaker. And so we've, we've, we've ventured into things like data collection for clients and we bring our twist to it by involving the communities. You know, it's no longer, you know, typically when some clients in the global North want to do data collection for the, in the global South, they hire professors and people at Harvard and Stanford who then hire some people they know or don't know in Kenya or somewhere. And, the data always ends up having some problems. But we found out that when you really hire and bring in the people who are on the ground geographically, who have knowledge about not just the linguistic, but also the geographical structure, mm-hmm. it helps a lot. It affects your data and really brings you the quality that you need. So this is a twist we're bringing to data collection. We're also doing research, you know, lots of research on how do you build a sustainable ecosystem that generates data from the African continent for clients and also gives back to the community. And so that's the farming thing by farming and then getting the data. Could you characterize what a, what a data farming process would be like? What's an example of an activity you would do to, to, to start Mm -hmm. growing that data, so to speak? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would is I it think doing the best interviews with character... people, or what is it? Yeah. I think, I think I feel like the best way to characterize it would be to talk about an ongoing project right now. Is so we have a project. Yes. yes. So we're currently doing, us. we're currently doing the Niger Voices, which is an ambitious project to get fifteen hundred hours of of audio data for the three major 
Nigerian languages. So that's Igbo, Hausa, and Yoruba. So that's 500 hours each. And so this is where the farming aspect comes in. We're not just thinking about how do we get the data and and that's it. You know, we get the data from you, you record your voice and bye-bye. We're thinking, how can we build a community out of these people getting the data? And so it's a grand project currently. So we we are we have not implemented all the steps of data farming, but the, the idea is like this. So right now you're you are donating your voice you're getting some compensation but how can we make it such that so first question is what more can we do so these communities what are they looking for some of them just want a job they want job some of them are students who are looking to study abroad or want more opportunities i i have seen a recurring theme of many people on the nigerian country really looking for opportunities. You have a lot of talent in Nigeria that are not, they don't, they cannot be utilized just because they are not in the right place. And so what we're now doing is, okay, we will create a community out of this. How do we help them with these opportunities? For some of them, it's connecting them to Masakani where they can now work on concrete projects, meet professors that they could never meet before, you know, because of where they are. Good. For some of them, it's connecting them with other data opportunities or other different opportunities that come up. So, Ryan, for example, in the past, Chris and I have talked about their scripts. So maybe one of these academics that Chris is mentioning writes a script of a series, maybe several pages of phrases and sentences that the data miners would then recite in their own language. So this would be something that would be very stock. And if you had a script of ask me all the different ways to engage with my smart device about temperature, you know, and so you would, you would then do that, for example, and you would have say 15 or 30 phrases that you would, and then that would be the product is your recitations would be in your language, the product. And one thing that Chris and I have discussed in the past is the fact that these products ideally made, you know, technical products are ideally made for people. And his ethos is about bringing those end consumers into the pipeline. So this is not something that you receive a script. This is actually more holistic engagement that has to do with what is being recorded, but also perhaps that the recording itself has cultural significance or as Chris was saying, it allows people to under, there's a conversation about why this is being recorded, how translation works. One thing that he and I have discussed at length is the difference between translation, right? So Chris is very comfortable with ambiguity. You know what's not comfortable with ambiguity are computers. And when you have two translations of the same concept, they need to be almost word for word in the different languages yeah. for a machine translation system to take it as input and to learn the patterns of the language. Yeah. But one of the challenges when collecting data in this more conventional mining approach is that when you give someone a sentence and say, I know you speak two languages, I'd like you to explain, to, pardon me, I'd like you to translate this in your second language, people will explain the first sentence. So the, the second sentence will be like three times longer because it's an explanation of the first sentence. Mm. That is not yeah. what in the West we would consider 
a good translation because we've been working in this little box that has ruined the creativity associated with thinking about language in a more ambiguous way. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Chris, I'd love to hear more about the quality of data that you look for when you're doing this. I, I, there was a conversation I was having with Sarah a couple weeks ago there was, because I'd, I'd read this number. The, the CEO of the Atlantic had been to Davos and was talking to a researcher in languages from South Africa, I believe, who said that they needed usually approximately 10,000 hours of live recordings in order to get a sufficient amount of a language to, to get an AI model to be able to use it well. And I want to know what your perspective was on that and, and the numbers, and maybe could you characterize beyond number of hours that you collect or, you know, or grow through these data farming operations, what makes the data good? How do you, how do you figure out if you're getting what's going to help? Oh, I like this question because it, I like the, 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 you know, how do you figure out if you're getting what's going to help? Yeah. Because that's something that I've been very, very particular on. I was telling Sarah about it, about data utility. And yeah. for me, it's really, it's not just we've created the data and that's it. But mm. and now what? Mm. How do you create impact from the data? Yeah. So based on some of the projects that, that I have been on, I've seen that data, so you get data based on a pro problem or something you're trying to solve. And I have been trying to approach data collection. That's for the projects that I have been involved in trying to approach data collection from a, you know, it's a point of view of here's a challenge or a problem I'm trying to solve. Let me go collect data besides just getting general scale data. So I think that's one way to kind of have something that helps because you're using the data into something that you're trying to solve. Then to answer your question about quality, fundamentally, I've seen that, I mean, I can talk from as a researcher, as a researcher, there's all these quality metrics, it's quality assurance, quality control, reviewing this, this, this. And, but I think I can add more perspective to that based on my experience. Get, so to really get the quality, you really need to, you need to bring the right team. You need to bring the right people. That's for me, that's the first thing. And I think the major challenge with data collection, it's not, it's none of these, all these other problems of quality control, they can all be, you know, you can engineer them. They are technological stuff. You write code for them and it's done. For me, the major problem is getting the right team. And I think that's what clients have. It's getting the right people. Everyone will front as, yeah, we have the right people. But if data is not of good quality, then it means that they did not really have the right people. So I really focus on the people behind the data, not the not the other aspect. I really focus on the people and it's bringing the right team, assessing the right people for the kind of data that you want. So what, the what, is, what attributes make the right person? Is it, are you talking about uh, cultural background understanding? Are you talking about uh, technical capabilities, all of the I above and finding the right mesh of all of this? It, de it, it depends. So the right people, so it's a ladder, right? Data collection is like, it's from the beginning, you start from defining the problem, then you get what you need, then you get, you know, you have you have a ladder of things that of data collection. And what I mean by getting the right team is like, at each step of the ladder, what's the right team? It depends on the data. So if it's a language data, 
then you know that at the base, the people who will translate or who will record, they have to be people who understand the language to some extent. And then if it's a computer vision data, you can say, okay, I don't really need people who understand that because it's much easier. And then you can say, okay, I won't worry so much about that. Let me worry more about maybe the team for maybe the technical aspects or something. So it really depends on the data that you collect. One of the projects that Chris and I worked on together was a machine translation competition. And in that, I highly encourage people to start teams because of exactly what Chris is noting. It's hard to find one person who's both technical and culturally aligned. It's much easier to kick around ideas. And this, this philosophy was grounded in, in part in the Netflix challenge from over a decade ago, where the winning team were individuals who had been chatting on a message board about their expertise in different mathematical optimization or linguistic intention, re-ranking approaches. And so they got, some of these folks got together and they won the challenge by this collaboration. It's also Mm. important to share that while Chris's work in machine translation, again, this is just one of the NLP stack of challenges that he's been working on and shows that Technology around language has become a lot more accessible to the average consumer to exactly the reasons you mentioned. And if folks wanted to get involved or join your, you know, following your approach, going to graduate school, do you have any suggestions for them? Because this is, how do we, how do we create the next crop of great people who are also involved in these I would say we don't have to create. They're already there. It's They're there. providing the, bringing the opportunities to them. And I say this really passionately because there are really a lot of talented, intelligent, smart people, students, and then students that, have, I, that are on the Nigerian continent or even the African continent. And I know because I've attended events like the Deep Learning in Dabar, which is like a annual conference of where the whole researchers from the African continent come together. I've had some projects with, with Nigerian folks. There are really a lot of smart people. And what they're looking for is the opportunity, you know, because unfortunately, while they're smart, the environment at that moment is not really conducive for them. So my 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 direction is really how do I bring opportunities to them? How do I create opportunities for them? And this is how I think we can create the the talent that you're talking about, Sarah. And I just wanted to second your statement because working on West African low resource languages, I the talent and the energy and the grit was just phenomenal. And it was really inspiring as someone who's been in academia, been in industry, to see the challenges that many people are, say are solved. I get so annoyed by that. Oh, it's a solved problem. Oh, there. That that's really just kind of putting a, a cork in a bottle and throwing it off the side of a boat. No, it, these aren't solved problems. And there's so much space for continued engagement by you know, people who care. And there's a lot of people out there who really care. Thank you, Chris. It's always great to, to hear your, your perspectives on these topics. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on at the Quebec AI Institute? Yeah, with pleasure. 
So, like, like you said, besides machine translation is not all I do. It's yeah. really a tiny percentage. I am, I, I'm, I wouldn't even call myself a machine translation person because my my interests are way, way uh, far from that. But it's still within that. When people ask me what I'm working on, I always define it in a triangle. So it's a triangle. You have you have NLP at the end. You have causality. And you have reinforcement learning. So these are the three research areas that I'm very interested in. And why is a triangle is because I'm also a lot of research directions. I explore them independently. So you have RL is all about agents, robots, NLP is machine translation, sequence, text, text, and causality is uh, a whole new field. But I'm really trying to explore them and also explore their connections. So for example, causality, NLP and rare languages, we're always bottlenecked by data, right? You never have enough data because deep learning right now is more data, better model. But if you could find a way to train, to get models that don't need so much data to learn, then these languages with a small data can actually lead to technologies and real impact. And this is something some ideas in causality might help, causality and reinforcement learning. So these are the ways I'm exploring the, the triangle connections. And this is what I'm doing basically right now at the Miller Quebec Institute. Fantastic. Well, I, I we're coming up on time, but I wonder if you could talk more about where, I don't know, what kinds of people you're looking to meet right now and where you think people should go to get involved as first steps in these things. If, if they're looking to be involved in a AI and language project, especially especially with African languages, for anyone interested in AI African languages, mm-hmm. I really suggest Masakane. Yeah, and it's really really as simple as going to the website, and the community is literally a Slack workspace. Mm-hmm. So it's so open. There is uh, Masakane is, I think, one of the first no barrier to entry and that was part of the mission of the community because if you put barriers then you you leave out some of the the people who and in the african continent there are a lot of people who cannot enter because of barriers so that's the thing i'm talking about creating opportunities so yeah i would suggest masakane and just going there to the community seeing what's going on asking questions a lot of really wonderful people there there's also the landfricker so Landfreaker, we have the Landfreaker workspace. We have mailing list where we give information about things going on when it comes to African language technologies. So, and then there are also wonderful work done by other people. I think if you go to Masakane, you ask for, hey, I'm looking for this, 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 you get like five replies telling you where to go to. So that's why I'm suggesting that. Okay. And then the kind of people I'm looking for, a lot of these ideas that, I have data farming, even the Masakani and all these things we're trying to do. They're good, but they need to be sustainable to have impact. And sustainability, we live in a capitalist world, so you also need to find different ways of bringing in revenue. And I'm really looking for people with the business and market skills who can help bring this my, you know, a philosophical social good idea and fuse it with a some, some market viability and explore ways to be sustainable. I think this is the major thing I'm looking for on the business side of, of Landfreaker specifically. That's exciting. And it's really, it's really cool to hear. I, I love hearing stories about people who pick up these skills and technical abilities in places that are tangential to what they're doing and end up creating an entirely new sort of 
professional profile for themselves out of it. And I, oh I, yeah. Yeah. I, I really, really, really do uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about this. Thank Is you for some, having me. Yeah. Sarah, did you want to finish up? Oh, I just wanted it? to say that I'm so, I'm so lucky to have met Chris quite a while back now. And I am excited about Lanfrica tackling some of the deep rooted issues that have hindered high value, you know, as you said, util- high u- utility data. And we were talking earlier about some of the translation data that we collected recently that was medical based. So using terminology that would allow people to communicate about COVID infection or other medical terms that had not been translated into local languages were explained in local languages to keep people safe. And the challenges that are solved or boring to many researchers are a a fecund field of opportunity for the rest of us. And I really look forward to continuing to work with you, Chris. So thank you for sharing what's going on in in your realm. Thanks a lot, Sarah. We'll have a wonderful weekend and please, by all means, after we're done, please send any more links over that are, are worth including and we'll make sure to put them in the show notes. That's it for this week's episode of the AI Artifacts podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you'll visit us on AIartifacts.net. There, you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. The show is produced by Brian Wormuth and Sarah Luger. Our visual design work is from Corey Scarin and Scarin Design. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States license.